Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp H-E-L-P. Before we start, a very quick program note. This episode is part of a much longer series. To be sure you get the whole story, we recommend that you jump back and start from episode one. Also, we want to invite any of our thousands of listeners who still use Facebook to join our friendly show group, which currently only has a couple of hundred fun-loving folks. Just search for the show's name. Finally, whether you do social media or not, please do drop us a line to tell us what you like or hate on the show at theparanoidstrain, that's all one word, at gmail.com. Okay, let's get going. Paranoid Strain Orchestra, hit it. points out how weirdly egotistical this set of conspiracies are. Russia is destined by providence to survive the coming apocalypse, but still the West, out of jealousy, plots to steal that destiny. Which ties into another conspiracist theme of Yablokov's book, the weird sort of chip-on-its-shoulder superiority complex that runs through many of the conspiracy-spreading Russian elite's theories. Emblematic of this tendency is the work of Natalia Naroshnitskaya, former diplomat, self-styled expert on global politics, and one-time member of the hilariously dystopian-sounding Presidential Commission to Counter Attempts to Falsify History to the Detriment of Russian Interests. Her thesis, essentially, is... Oh, yeah? Well, you're just jealous. Or, to put it another way, the Russian nation and culture are so advanced that the West, which invariably lags behind its spiritual and political achievements, whatever the fuck that means, Anyway, that's why we in the West are constantly trying to undermine Russian society. Because we jelly. Here's the lady herself going in hard on that contemporary Ukraine spin. What your army is doing to these people here is destroying their cities, killing their children. So how does this end? This will end the same happy end as with Nazi Germany. And we will withdraw, certainly, from Ukraine after uh, this noble and uh, honest goal is, uh, you know, realized, etc. This 
kind of superiority is part and parcel of the identity discussion. If we say that we are the people that started building our nation state in the late 19th century, Americans had their identity, you know, from the 17th century, Britons from the 16th century. Our economy is inherently problematic. Our culture is incredibly influenced by the Dutch, by the Germans, by the Britons, by the Italians, and by the French. So how do we define ourselves? What is Russian about us? Then people like Narachinsky are going to say, look, Russia was always unique. Russia was always kind of more spiritual. Like Russians are going to invite you to your house after your first drink in a bar. You might end up in the flat, right? We're drinking with Russians. But then it will never happen in Sweden, for example, right? You need to be friends with these people for many years before they actually invite you to, to visit their house. There are cultural differences, which are amusing for a normal people. All these ridiculous statements about Russians being super spiritual, Russians being super friendly and kind of unique nation with incredible religiosity. That's crap. Because Narachnitska herself, at the moment when she was writing these lines, she lived abroad. She was a representative of Russian government in France. Why she chose to live in France? Why they all choose to buy houses and properties in the West. Because it's all hypocritical. But saying these things about Russian identity, Russian superiority, is part and parcel of the political message. The shock comes when an ordinary Russian comes to the United Kingdom and goes to the shop, goes to elections, watches TV. At some point, he or she will realize everything he or she was told was lies. One practical recent expression of this conspiracist chauvinism has been the result of a weird feedback loop between the U.S. and Russia. Since the 2016 presidential campaign, it's clear the media in the U.S. have decided that Russia's online efforts to fuck with Western political life are all-powerful, and that they were the key factor in both the election of Donald Trump and the passage of Brexit in the U.K. We'll have plenty to say about media overreactions and inflation of Russia's competence in these areas later in the series, we assure you. Definitely, but something weird happened as a result of this American overreaction. The Russians bought it. Yablokov notes Russian politicians were suddenly proud of hacking the states. So their fear of the U.S. combined with their cultural chauvinism to make them believe the overblown, hyperventilating, borderline ridiculous claims about the outsized impacts that Russian hackers had actually had on the U.S. and the U.K. as a result. We're all inclined to scoff at this Russian chauvinism based on thin air, but a big part of the reason we're talking about Russia's total collapse into a conspiracist nightmare is because this is one of the big elements our cultures share a grandiose self-image. The only difference is that, the Trump era aside, our political leadership and intellectuals have traditionally not embraced ridiculous persecution narratives at the highest levels of government. But the threat is clearly there, perhaps more now than ever before. And importantly, just as is the case with Trump and his big election lie, it appears an open question the degree to which Putin actually believes his own bullshit. For example, the man claimed back in 2014 that the internet was a CIA project, and it's still developing as such, so Russians have to fight this influence, yada yada yada. At one time, statements like these sounded like cynical provocations by a master manipulator. In the wake of the delusional and poorly planned Ukraine invasion, the line between cynicism and true belief is blurred. 
Here's how Professor Yablokov addresses the issue. Today, I would argue that Vladimir Putin really believes in conspiracy theories. And every time he's online, every time he speaks publicly, he mentions conspiracy theories. He always argues in conspiratorial terms. Thank God he's not tweeting. What happened to the guy? Pretty much from 2017, this regime started massive ideological, economic, and social degradation. There is a cynical aspect in Putin's using conspiracy theories because it is still working relatively well as a tool to mobilize the electorate and support Vladimir Putin. But I think that the problem with Russia's establishment nowadays is that it's well down the rabbit hole and it simply cannot go back. Because if it goes back, it is not going to be perceived well by those Russians who really buy into the anti-Western stuff. And roughly saying it's 50% of the population. People who run Russian media, people who run Russian government, all realize the amount of paranoia that was spreading in the last several years turned very large part of the Russian population into psychologically very unstable people. What do you know? Spend all of your time spreading paranoia and you and your people get kind of touchy. Which brings us to the most salient current Russian news. That is, of course, their incursion into neighboring Ukraine. Now, of course, there's a lot of recent history leading up to this, from the expansion of NATO to various elections and crises in Ukraine itself. But clearly, the current conflagration started with Putin's 2014 annexation of Crimea, as well as the ongoing proxy war that was subsequently fought by pro-Russian armies in the eastern Donbass region. Which, of course, eventually brings us to the current full-scale invasion. But it's important to remember that prior to crossing that Rubicon, the Kremlin had been sowing lies and confusion about the situation in Ukraine and the reason for hostilities in the minds of Russians for most of a decade. For example, reporter Ann Applebaum, in a discussion about authoritarianism on a recent Ezra Klein podcast, discussed the Russian propaganda response to the inadvertent downing of a Malaysian airliner in 2014 by pro-Russian forces. It is the policy of Putin's Kremlin to make Russians apathetic by offering them contradictory and sometimes ridiculous pieces of information that don't make sense. After the crash of MH17, shot down accidentally by Russian soldiers, the state came out with completely different explanations. And sometimes even the same television presenter would give one explanation and then a different explanation an hour later. And this kind of multiplication of explanations meant that people were totally disoriented. They said, we have no idea what happened and we can never know. I actually saw a kind of man on the street interviews that were done in Moscow a few days later and people's attitude was, we have no idea. Well, it's impossible to find out. You know, if you don't know what happened and you feel that you can never know what happened, then how can you do anything about it? Um, and so I think these are sort of parallel and related feelings. You know, I'll accept anything, but I'm at the same time skeptical of everything. And of course, since the invasion, we've all heard the frightening stories about how effective the official government tale has been. Many of you will no doubt have heard interviews with Russians living in Ukraine who've been unable to convince their family members back home that they are, in fact, being bombed. In Misha, your father is in Russia. And after days of bombing and days of this invasion, you were wondering why he hadn't called to check on you in Ukraine. So you finally got him on the phone 
What did he say? I told him that we woke up from the bombing and that I took my like little son who is eight months old and uh, we tried to escape and uh, to save the family. And uh, he started to argue. She said, no, 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 everything is not like this. She told me that the Russia started like a peaceful operation and they're trying to save us from the Nazis regime, which occupied our country. And uh, the most interesting thing was uh, that the Russian soldiers are giving uh, to the local people food and warm clothes. So that's the thing he saw on the TV. And they said, no, father, now I'm here. I see what's going on. My friends also see what's going on. Um, and uh, he just could not believe in this. So um, I spent maybe five minutes trying to talk to him, and then I just say goodbye. Sorry. <laughs> Surely okay. hearing this story will make some of you shudder, recalling various conversations you've had with close family members over the past few years, during which you've tried to establish some agreement on baseline reality. You know, up is up. COVID vaccines don't cause 5G cancer. The 2020 election was fairly decided, et cetera, et cetera. But at least our in-denial family members have been hand-waving at either invisible problems, global warming, global pandemics, or complex if nonsensical plots like Stop the Steal that claim untrue but non-obvious things. Like, it's not as if each of us counted every 2020 ballot. We just understand that the proper checks have been made of those counts and certified by hundreds of independent and unconnected officials and jurisdictions, and that all of the stolen votes theories don't stand up to the vaguest scrutiny. But denying votes were counted fairly in a series of closed rooms is rather different than claiming, no son, that Russian missile you just saw blow up your local shopping mall, that never happened. Not that we think, America, we're not quite as delusional as Russia, is a great slogan update, mind you. Putin's reckless invasion of Ukraine made Yablokov reevaluate some of the conclusions he had come to in his book. On the one hand, the state seems to have been successful in keeping many Russians from really understanding what's happening across their border. But at the same time, it is called into question the entire world's view of Putin as a brilliant, bloodless, calculating Bond villain playing 4D chess. With the war in Ukraine, I had to reconsider one of the conclusions from this book that the Kremlin is actually skeptical and very postmodernist in the way how it uses. No, not anymore. The amount of propaganda certainly guarantees public support of, say, 50% of population believing in what the propaganda says. Plus, you have law enforcement services totally at your disposal. This mix can help the regime survive. But there is another thing that I have learned from this crisis. Probably one of the scariest things is social media. It's not television. It is not surprising that so many people are just unable to believe in what really happens in Ukraine because they've been brainwashed for so many years. They never traveled to Ukraine. They never traveled to Baltic States. They never traveled traveled to the United States. So they can believe anything, right? But social networks are much more dangerous. Propaganda that can come to you through television, traditional media, when you're exposed to that, you want to get to social media because this is how your brain works. And we know that. So people go on social media, no matter what is their political views, and they end up in a particular stream of information that then can change their perception of reality. If you look at those soldiers that fight in Ukraine these days, Russian soldiers, you see that they all have cell phones. They sit on VK, Russia's biggest social network. 
They are fed with constant propaganda. This is how they spend a meaningful part of their life. They brainwash themselves with pleasure because this is one of the very few things that the poor Russian state can offer these guys. We asked him how the state's monopoly on propaganda had been called into question in recent years. Traditional media, new media, bigger social networks, they're all under control. But when it comes to the real problems like inflation or coronavirus, injection of medicine, it's not some kind of imagined Ukrainian Nazis. I can fill it with my own pockets and I can fill it with my own body. So you cannot fool me says an ordinary Russian, and goes online to look for the facts that would sustain his or her belief in these things. No matter how strong Putin is and the media and the propaganda, Russians have this inherent tradition of mistrust to the government in the things that are concerning their own very real, very personal problems. And this is the limitation of propaganda. And in that case, I'm sure propaganda will not be able to break this, uh, break this trend down. Well, thanks, Jesuit. This overview of Russia's current state of affairs and what it pretends for Western democracies if we can't get our loonier populace back on the reality bus is a real nightmare. Was there anything positive that came out of this? Kind of. Depends on what you mean by positive. One thing that really struck me was that the professor talked about the benefits that conspiracies can have in an authoritarian society, simply by highlighting that society's problems, even if for false reasons. Conspiracy theories can help us understand the weaknesses of our society. Certainly things like QAnon can create a lot of problems, even cause death, as we know. But if we look at conspiracy theories produced not by the Kremlin, but produced by, let's say, Russian opposition, we will see how transparency is lacking in the way how the country is ruled. You can be a big fan of Vladimir Putin, but in your day-to-day -day life, if you happen to meet a policeman in the street and policemen will fine you without any reason or even put you in jail for like several years, you will hate people who work in the police, in intelligence, in counterintelligence. Before the war and even before the whole thing with coronavirus, you could see there was a lot of anti-Putin, anti-government rhetoric coming from social media. Very often conspiratorial, always pointing at the Kremlin as the source of tragedies for the Russian people. If you analyze the discourse of Russian liberal opposition, you will also note quite a lot of conspiratorial readings of what Putin does and how Putin does. And you will see a lot of humiliation that people have from the way they are ruled. The government that was appointed by the Kremlin knows nothing, does nothing, and only makes things worse. But you can't do anything with that. The counterintelligence is going to put you in jail. You're going to be called extremist. Of course, they will be silent because they are afraid. And that is one of the reasons why so few people protest today against the war in Ukraine. Their powerlessness inevitably will be channeled into conspiracy theories that dismantle the reputation of the Kremlin. 
Vladimir Putin and the rest of his establishment simply do not realize the amount of problems they have been creating by polarizing society, by trying to create this concrete floor and put all those grassroots under this concrete floor. How much did you love it when he made that grassroots under his concrete floor analogy? I almost swooned, unicorn. And with that, we've pretty much wrapped up our overview of the history and domestic status of conspiracy theories in Russia. Now we want to see how fear of Russia kicked off the movements that can be traced over the decades to the QAnon we all know and are confused by. And that begins with the genuine Soviet infiltration of U.S. institutions in the post-war period, the Red Scare overreaction to that infiltration, and the unflappable, often insane standard-bearers for anti-communism who, as a result of all this, came to define the conspiracist right, the John Birch Society. Kids, it's time for some real talk about communism. Finally, comrades, shake off the chains of your oppressive overlords. Seize the means of podcast production. We will educate the proletariat about conspiracy theories without the bourgeois trappings of research, script, music, and all that fancy Yankee decadence. Fearful Jesuit is the opium of the masses. Up against the wall, motherfucker! Well, that was, um... Unexpected. And a little disturbing. And where did you get that balaclava and Molotov cocktail? What? These? I always have them handy. To man the barricades in case the workers rise up and revolt. Be prepared, you know? But then, how do you keep the rag burning in the neck of the bottle? Don't you run out of fuel? Oh, I'm so happy you asked. My mom bought me this little Molotov refill device from Spencer's Gifts for Christmas. It's surprisingly well made and durable. Huh. Oh, that is neat. It was a little weird that you seemed to call for my grisly and summary execution, though. Ah, you know, people say weird stuff. I wouldn't worry about it too much. Let me just test this over there. And let's move on. You were talking about communism? Yes, and your little outburst serves as a nice segue into the first of the tomes we examined for this section, Spiderweb by Nick Fisher. A Gwen Stefani tell-all? I should mention its subtitle is The Birth of American Anti-Communism. Oh, so it's about the Joe McCarthy Red Scare that your country leapt into with both feet when the Soviets started successfully infiltrating U.S. and other Western nations in the post-war period? Yeah, that's what we assumed as well, but no, it turns out the beginnings of the great American anti-commie freakout run far deeper than that. Marx and Engels published their world-shaking pamphlet The Communist Manifesto in 1848, and Fisher demonstrates that by the 1860s, in the wake of the Union victory in the Civil War, American business leaders and politicians were already using the specter of communist takeover of the USA as a bludgeon with which to beat back any attempts to improve the awful conditions in which most Americans labored. To quote the man himself, Increasing numbers of Americans struggle to meet their basic needs. They did not make a living wage nor work in a safe environment and they had no safety net to sustain them when they became sick or disabled. The principle of forcing people to labor in intolerable conditions or for intolerable terms survived slavery to become a basic feature of working life. They worked in dangerous jobs for subsistence wages, in constant fear of poverty and loss of livelihood. Average workers bore the brunt of prolonged recession. 
Simultaneously, the economic dominance of corporations and the institutionalization of political corruption as the price of economic development increased with each passing decade. Many employers and magnates refused to negotiate with labor unions, and the state generally rose to the defense of property. Okay, but couldn't these downtrodden laborers look to their government for help? Boy, Unicorn, that was a slow pitch over the middle of the plate. Government attitudes toward the disbursement of public monies were epitomized by President Grover Cleveland, who in 1892 agreed to lower interest rate charges on a $26 million government loan to the Union of Pacific Railroad, but vetoed a $10,000 appropriation for Texas farmers in need of drought relief. Citizens, the president said, had to understand that though the people support the government, the government should not support the people. Fisher also notes that during the late 19th century, when most English-speaking countries were expanding the vote, the U.S. was actually in a race to squash the expansion of that political freedom via labor organizing, usually through upsettingly violent means. Calling the workers communists was a nice shorthand to group disparate efforts together under a single banner that could then be characterized as un-American. And of course, the police at this point were only too happy to bust communist heads at the behest of captains of industry and their political enablers. This is not to say there wasn't actual violence perpetrated by pro-labor forces, like the activities of the transatlantic and arguably apocryphal Molly McGuire's coal mining activist group, some of whose purported members were tried and executed for murders and other crimes related to their struggle against the mining companies. But the preponderance of violence, repression, and overheated rhetoric was unquestionably on the side of the capitalists. Out of these efforts and the first American Red Scare, set off by the Bolshevik takeover of the government of Russia in the waning days of World War I, the network of interlocking anti-communist, anti-immigrant, pro-business groups that gives Fisher's book its title first began to emerge. And from the beginning, Fisher notes, there was a significant mismatch between these organizations' pro-freedom rhetoric and the way they actually constituted themselves and went about their business. The great majority of these organizations were publicly disingenuous about their aims and methods. Whether they were state and military intelligence arms that concealed and disavowed their illegal political surveillance and strike-breaking, or commercial lobbies that cloaked themselves in old glory and the Constitution, spiderweb organizations operated on the basis of conspiracy. They functioned internally as rigidly hierarchical autocracies, and externally as secretive, shadowy groups, refusing to divulge their financial affairs and principal sources of income even to their own members. This approach was not surprising. Revealing such information would necessarily disclose the anti-democratic and elitist character of the anti-communist movement, which survived on subsidies from wealthy businessmen and corporations. In one particular weird turn of affairs, anti-communism actually helped big business rehabilitate itself prior to World War II. During the Great Depression, the reputation of these companies in the minds of the public was dog shit, but by relentlessly flocking the specter of creeping socialism, a term used to smear every piece of social legislation during the period, Fisher details how businesses turned the tide of public opinion back in favor of themselves at the expense of a mostly phantom enemy, those goddamn traitorous American commies. And here, of course, is the moment when two important anti-communist voices arose, the aforementioned tailgunner Joe McCarthy and a man who will be the focus of most of our attention in this section, Robert Welch Jr. We live in the age of Robert Welch, whether or not we know who he is, what he did, or why he matters. That's the opening line of a really good biography of Welch that came out this year, and I would tell you the name of it, but the gent who was kind enough to let us interview him for this section will do a better job. My name is Edward H. Miller, and I'm the author of 
A Conspiratorial Life, which is a biography of Robert Welch. And why is Mr. Miller so sure we're living in the world Welch made? Well, consider the following quote. Welch called Sputnik 1 a hoax. Welch believed Vietnam to be a phony war in which both sides were being run not from the White House, but from the Kremlin. Welch said the civil rights movement was a conspiracy of the communists. The creation of the United Nations, he was sure, was just the beginning step toward one world government, with communists and American officials working behind the scenes. Sound like a certain contemporary conspiracy cult you've heard of? If not, here's an even more scathing and actually pretty unfair portrayal that was issued in a 1961 California Attorney General's report on the John Birch Society that Welch founded, and which seems even more apropos regarding the similarities between the Birchers and QAnon. The cadre of the John Birch Society seems to be formed primarily of wealthy businessmen, retired military officers, and little old ladies in tennis shoes. They are bound together by an obsessive fear of communism, a word which they define to include any ideas differing from their own, even though these ideas may differ even more markedly with the ideas of Marx, Engels, Lenin, and Khrushchev. In response to this fear, they are willing to give up a large measure of the freedoms guaranteed them by the United States Constitution in favor of accepting the dictates of their founder. They seek, by fair means or foul, to force the rest of us to follow their example. They are pathetic. Mr. Miller's introduction certainly connects Trump-era evidence-free conspiracy theories directly to the inspiration of Welch, his influential writing, and the John Birch Society he founded. Uh, whether you love him or hate him, you can't deny the amazing life that he led. To some, he was a genius. To others, he was a madman. He wanted to change the world. But when the world wouldn't listen, he founded a world that would. It was a world of conspiracy, a world of make-believe. Even better, for your host's ego, Welch eventually came to expand his conspiracy thinking beyond communism to embrace a broader conspiracy that once again fits well with Jesuits' maxim of conspiracy underpinnings. In other words, that the actual movers and shakers behind the plot against freedom started with Weishaupt and the Bavarian Illuminati. The standard narrative implies that when influential conservative intellectual and publisher William F. Buckley Jr. excommunicated Welch and the Birchers from the mainstream of the conservative movement back in the mid-60s, they became increasingly marginalized as extremists. But as we've seen through the work of Rick Perlstein and others, back in the historical political conspiracy series we did in 2020, this excommunication was not nearly as thorough as Buckley would have wanted you to believe. And in fact, at this point in history, it's clear that Welch's brand of conspiracist conservatism has far more sway over the political landscape than does Buckley's more measured approach. In Miller's words, Most analyses of the conservative movement have made the tones of American conservatism sound like the Beach Boys, but it has always sounded like death metal. For a person with such a combative and oppositional legacy, Welch by all accounts lived a personal life that was remarkably happy and content. Sure, he spent decades trying to wrest some approval out of his father, but his mother was so loving and supportive she armored her son with an apparently unassailable sense of self-confidence. From childhood, he never doubted he was destined to do great things. He was a child prodigy who was reading at the age of two. He attended the University of North Carolina when he was 12 years old. He had a very happy home life. He was a devoted husband. Uh, he married the woman of his dreams. He was very much in love from the time that he met her. He spent a decade building his own business in the candy industry. He was the maker of the sugar daddies, those uncoated cooked caramel on a stick, which became a childhood favorite. 
Interestingly, he did this not because he was obsessed with succeeding in business, so much as because he wanted to have a comfortable enough living to support his intellectual pursuits. And it's worth noting that his choice of industry may, per Miller, have had some unexpected influence on the young man's intellectual development. He noted that an air of secrecy and suspicion pervaded the growing industry at the time. As confectioners sought to protect their most popular recipes and in-development products from prying eyes, presumably with a nod to Roald Dahl, he notes, quote, in 20th century America, reclusive, eccentric, and paranoid confectioners were found not only in the pages of novels. The danger must be growing for the rowers to keep on rowing, and they're certainly not showing any signs that they are Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.